Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Carl, and I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Unley. Obviously, I'm not with you in person this morning, and I'm, in a way, very sorry not to be with you. Um, but I'm not feeling very well today, and so I'm glad in one sense, and you're probably even gladder yourselves, that I'm not actually with you and not sharing the bugs that I have with you today. Well, we're midway in a series looking at Genesis 4 through to 11, and today we're looking at the story of the flood. I wonder if you're familiar with the podcast Serial. Serial narrates the non-fiction story through the eyes of its host, investigative journalist Sarah Koenig, all about the murder of Hay Min Lee. Serial is hugely popular as a podcast. It's been downloaded more than 340 million times. Now, granted, I think much of the popularity in the podcast comes from it being freely available and free to download. And also the popularity is due to the unique way in which Sarah Koenig narrates the series. But here's what I think makes Serial so appealing, so compelling. It's a story searching for justice. It's an unfolding narrative that's trying to get to the bottom of a strange but very real human murder. And Serial is exploring and asking questions about who is at fault and who should be judged. We all long for justice, don't we? We all want justice to be meted out. This is true, I think, even of kids that are very young. I reckon in in our house, one of the very first sentences that my little kids said was, that's not fair. I give a three-year-old a biscuit with one less chocolate chip than his brother, and you'll see humanity's desire for justice loud and clear. Today, we're looking at the story of the flood. Now, I'm sure you're already familiar with this story. It's perhaps the best known of all the Old Testament stories. You know, even in the in the creche toy box out in the minis room, we have a plastic Noah's Ark, and it's filled with little plastic animals. Noah and his ark are in most of the kids' Bibles. It's, it's a favourite story. I wonder if they've ever stopped to think why. Why of all the stories in the Bible does the story of Noah's Ark get made into a set of plastic kids' toys? Because as you read this story, it's, it's horrific, isn't it? That the entire world, everything that has breath in its nostrils, drowns. So what is the story of the flood all about? What's the big idea? What does the writer want us to know? Well, here's how I'd answer that question. This is a story all about God. It's all about how God (coughs) responds to what humanity is like. Remember last week we read together the the Toledot, that block of text about humanity? Remember we learned two things about people? One, we're all destined to die. And secondly, We're all sinful. Well, this week, we're not so much looking at humanity, but we're looking at God. And we see in this passage that God is a just God 
And not only that, God is a God who saves through judgment. God is a God who saves through judgment. Now, before we get into the story, there are, of course, lots of questions, as always in this part of Genesis, lots of questions that we might want to ask of the text. Here's a few of them. Did the flood really cover the whole earth? Or did it just cover part of it? Where did all the water come from? Did Noah really manage to put every animal into the ark? How did he feed them? There are flood stories in many other cultures around the world and in many other religions. How does this impact the way in which we might read Genesis? And perhaps what all of these questions are really asking, at least at one level, is this question. Is this story a myth or is it reality? Now, if you're interested in answers to these questions, there's, there's a whole stack of books and articles that are written to explore just these questions. What I'll say today on this topic is that the New Testament, it certainly seems to speak of Noah and the flood as an event that really happened. And even if you can't stomach that idea, this passage must still be useful for us today because 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This account, Noah's Toledot, is God-breathed and it's useful for us today that we might be equipped and trained in righteousness. So how does it do that? Well, potentially in many ways, but at least in this way. It helps us to see that God is a God who is just and who saves through judgment. Well, let's start by considering God and his justice. Our own sense of justice is one of the things that makes driving on the road so frustrating. Think how you felt uh, last time someone cut you off when you were driving in the traffic. You're kind of stuck there, aren't you? There's no way for you to extract justice on your own except perhaps to thump the steering wheel with the palm of your hand or to say a few choice words. Or think about how, how great it feels, how satisfying it is when someone speeds past you recklessly only to be pulled over a few minutes later by an unmarked police car. How good does that feel? See, see, we all love, we all value justice. And I think we all want God to be a God who is just. And I think the more that we've been wronged or hurt or been exposed to injustice, the stronger that desire is. Many of the Psalms are, are songs that cry out to God for his justice to be done. We want God to be just. With one exception, of course, we want him to look on ourselves, on us, with mercy. But in the main, we want God to be a God of justice. And that, I think, is the big idea of chapters 6 and 7 of Genesis. God is just. His justice in these chapters is, is shown in contrast to the sinfulness of people that we've been seeing in chapters 4 and 5. Remember in chapter 4, 
sin is crouching at our door. Remember in chapter 5, we're all destined to die. And from the start of chapter 6, the whole of humanity is sinful. This is the plight, the case, the nature of humanity. And it's set here against the justice of God. I think often we think of the story of Noah as, as being all about Noah and, and his animals. But as we read it today, did you, did you notice how active God is in the story? God is the star of the story, not Noah. You know, in contrast to God, Noah is very passive. He doesn't speak. He listens and he obeys. But he's presented as a very flat character. In contrast, God is active. Have a look with me at the text in in chapter 6, verse 12. See, God sees how corrupt the world is. In verse 13, God speaks. In verse 14, God directs Noah how to build the ark. In chapter 7, verse 4, it is God who will send the rain. In chapter 7, verse 16, it is God who shuts the door on the ark. God is the main actor in this story. And his actions in chapters 6... And seven are about his justice being worked out. But this is not easy reading, is it? If we leave the kind of kid story of Noah and the ark behind us for a moment and we read what's in front of us, it's confronting. Now come with me to verse 11 of chapter 7. The rain starts falling. In the 600th year of Noah's life, On the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were open, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Then come down with me to verse 20. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds Livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. You know, I think we're so used to this story that our minds kind of skim over the the grim reality of what's going on here in this passage. Everything that has the breath of life in it dies. I love going surfing. I don't do it as often these days as I used to do it, but I can still remember those times where the waves were too big that I was out beyond my ability. Happens quite a lot, actually. Um, You know, those times where you get dumped and you're well underwater and your lungs are screaming but you just come to the surface and another wave crashes on your head. They say just to relax your body and that you'll float to the surface but your body's screaming for air. Scary. And here in the story water covers everything. It's chaos. I wonder how you feel as this was read to you. 
Do you get angry about this passage? Do you think, how could God do that? Does it make you ask questions like, what hope do I have? Do you enjoy the justice that we're reading in this passage? I don't think many of us do. We might like justice, but I don't think we like this sort of justice. Most of us, I think, just want to skim over the reality of what's written in these words and think about something a bit easier, like, what did Noah feed the lions for lunch? But there's no doubt about it, this is a difficult story to read. Why does God do this? And God's in control, certainly. Chapter 7, verse 4, God says, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days. God is the one who is judging here. So why? Well, the answer is back in chapter 6, verse 5. This is what it says. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Here we have a God of justice at work. A just judge. Judging the world. This is what God is like. Is this the God you know? Are you feeling a bit upset by this? I think we're supposed to be upset. This is a horrific picture we're reading here. But this passage is not all bad news. Although chapter 6 and 7 have shown us the judgment of God, I want you to see that these verses are all working towards a point. And that point is is chapter 8, verse 1. I want to suggest to you that this is the most important verse, 8 verse 1, in this section. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. So here we have God saving Noah, saving him and preserving him, despite the storms that rage all around. And it was always his intention, wasn't it? An ark, a lifeboat. But here in chapter 8, despite the storm raging, God remembers Noah. How do I know this is the most important verse? Well, well, the structure of the text makes this verse the focal point. Now, I get this from Gordon Wemmon's commentary. And to see it most clearly, you'll need to have your Bible printouts open with you, your A3 pages if you've got them. You see, this story, the flood narrative, it follows a Hebrew writing pattern. It follows what scholars call a a chiastic structure. And in in a chiasm, the middle of the chiasm is the focal point. And I want you to see today that the middle is 8 verse 1. In other words, the focal point of this passage is in God remembering Noah. I'm going to put that structure up onto the screen now so you can see it. And let's work from the middle of the chiasm outwards, from chapter 8, verse 1. So on either side of chapter 8, verse 1, you can see the floods rising in verses 7, 17 to 24. And then on the other side, in chapter 8, 1 to 5, you see the floods receding. It's a bit like 
chapter 8, verse 1, is a mirror. If we take one step further back, one layer further out, in chapter 7, verses 11 to 16, we see the flood starting, which is contrasted to the drying of the earth in chapter 8, verses 6 to 14. Go back one more layer and we see two speeches of God. In chapter 7, enter the ark. In chapter 8, leave the ark. I think you get the picture. Chapters 6 and 7 mirrors chapters 8 and 9, and right in the middle is the focal point, God remembering Noah. God saving Noah. Sure, these chapters show us the judgment of God. That's what the second part of chapter 6 and chapter 7 are all about. But it's more than that. These chapters show us God's faithfulness to Noah. These chapters show us God's sovereign purposes in saving Noah and his family. So this is not just a story about judgment. It's a story of God saving through judgment. Isn't that glorious? This passage shows us clearly that God is a God who saves and he does it through judgment. Now, if you think I'm reading too much into the structure of this passage, we can do a similar thing with the the numbers in this passage. Again, they show us that chapter 8, verse 1, is the hinge point or the focal point of the text. And again, this is care of Gordon Wenham. Let me just show you this. Look at either side of the 150. 150 days of water prevailing, 150 days of water abating. And smack bang in the middle, God remembers Noah. Take a step out and we have 40 days of flood or 40 days wait in the ark. Or step back again and we have seven days of waiting and again seven days of waiting. You see, the focal point is in God remembering Noah, God preserving Noah, God saving Noah and his family. You know, for those of us who know the rest of the story of the Bible, this idea of God saving a faithful remnant It'll become a big theme in the Bible. This is how how God works. The final thing I want to look at with you today in our passage is at the end of chapter 8. It's a promise that God makes. After coming out of the ark, Noah sacrifices some clean animals to God and God is pleased with the aroma and he says in his heart, Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God is making a promise here that he's not going to act in the same way again. We'll see that promise developed into a covenant with Noah next week. But for now, it's enough to see that the promise that God makes. It's a promise that he makes knowing that the flood, although it wiped out nearly the whole of humanity, it's not fixed the endemic problem of the human heart. Have a look with me. I think this is really important. It's there in verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. See, in the flood, God brought judgment on humanity, and yet it's not fixed the underlying problem. God tells us even after the flood that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. It's almost the exact repeat of what we read in chapter 6, verse 5, which was the reason for the flood in the first place. 
And here in chapter 8, God is promising that he won't destroy humanity in the same way again. He's been just. But he hasn't fixed the problem of humanity. And indeed, we'll see things start to go wrong in the very next chapter with Noah and his drunkenness. And then by chapter 11, we see more offence in the building of the Tower of Babel. Sin's not gone from the world, it's still there. And so we should be left asking, shouldn't we? If God's not going to send another flood, what's he going to do about the human heart? The answer, of course, is that he sends himself. He judges the only true righteous person in his only son, Jesus. He pours out his wrath on the only true righteous person, his son, Jesus. That is how God's justice is upheld. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, a famous passage and a very much loved one for many of us, says this, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You might remember last week that I talked about walking in Jesus. Not just with him, but in him. And how our union with Jesus was part of how we're seen blameless in God's sight. But today I want us to see that our union with Christ means that we've been buried with him under the floodwaters, so to speak, but also raised with him. It's the Apostle Peter who links baptism and the flood. You can see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. You could say that Christ was buried under the water of another flood, that he died in our place, in humanity's place. And while Peter links baptism and the flood, when Paul wrote Romans, he certainly had Genesis in mind. In chapter 5, he talks about Adam and how how sin entered the world through him. But it's chapter 6 of Romans that I'd like to work with you now. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 6, starting midway through verse 3. Well, don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, our union with Christ means we're connected to him. That just as he died, so we too have died. And just as he's been raised, so we too will be raised. How does, fit with this, with, how does this fit with Noah and the flood? Well, the world in Genesis is flooded, but the ark carries Noah and his family to safety. Through the ark, Noah and his family are saved. So then, for us also, Jesus bears up under the wrath of God's judgment. The waves of judgment crash over him, but by being united with him, we too are raised up through the water, in resurrection life. This is a symbol of baptism, isn't it? Some of you might have been with us at the start of the year when we baptised Hong out on the lawn, just outside here. In baptism, we're showing symbolically that we've died, died to the old life. Just as the flood covered all of humanity in Genesis, we too have died to the old life, but just like Noah, we too have been saved, raised to new life. 
carried from death to life by Jesus. If we extend the symbol, then it's a bit like Jesus is the ark or the boat. He's our rescuer and our hope. Cling to him. And though he might be buried under the waves, we'll also be raised to new life. Ultimately, this is the great hope we have as Christians. The lifeboat or the ark, it's not just there for Noah. It's there for us too in the person of Jesus. And we need it because we're human and every inclination of the human heart is evil. We need saving. And just like there was a spot on the ark for Noah, with Jesus there is a spot for those of us who put our hope and trust in him. Our God is the same God we read about in Genesis. He's a God who saves through judgment. Now, we're not saved by anything that we can do, but by being united with Jesus in his death so that we too will be raised to new life with him. This is how the God of justice is able to create for himself a people that you and I are part of. So you and I are part of humanity, aren't we? Our hearts are changed through the work of the Spirit. I hope and I pray that that's happening. But regardless of that, our hearts still remain corruptible. But not Jesus. And in being united with him, we are saved by a just God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this story of Noah and the ark, and what it teaches us about you, that you are a just God, and yet you're a God who saves through judgment. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that his heart is not corruptible, and that he was willing to suffer your wrath for us, and that by clinging to him, we too will be raised with him. Amen.